a trusted voice of truth and light. God gave me a gift. I shovel well. I shovel very well. And a rally point for those who've accepted the reality that they are not sheep. We've got a blind date with destiny. And it looks like she's ordered the lobster. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Well, hello there and welcome to the show. Now we're off and running. It is Wednesday, May 26th. I'm going to waste no time getting right into the thick of things. And uh, this is going to push some people. This is going to push some folks right to the edge of their comfort zone. It's not my goal to make you uncomfortable or angry or fearful. But uh, this is a topic that I think may have some relevance. And I, I, you know, when it comes to touchy subjects, nothing comes close to the reaction that a person gets by weighing in on Israel and Palestine. Oh, I know. See, right there. Did you feel your knee jerk? What? <laughs> and and the, the sides are so polarized. And yet, uh, you know, and there was a time when I, when I was very much, you know, of the mindset of, well, nobody will criticize Israel. That's the Lord's people. And, you know, those Palestinians are just all terrorists. There's some very one-dimensional thinking that goes on here. And I'm not trying to persuade you that you've got to take one side or the other, but I will say that before I had a chance to have a little bit of historical perspective, and and a good portion of this came from a book that I read, uh, I don't know, 10 or 12 years ago, maybe longer, called Blood Brothers. And it's from a Christian Palestinian minister by the name of Elias Shakur. He grew up in what is referred to as Palestine. This is prior to 1948. This is prior to, you know, the the nation state of Israel being formed. He and his family had a beautiful uh, olive orchard. Um, they lived there. I mean, it's not it's not to say everything was perfect and nobody had ever argued in the Middle East before then. But here's the bottom line: He writes from the standpoint of someone who um, underwent being dispossessed of his family's lands. I mean, they'd been, they'd been living there. They had been uh, growing olives for generations. And they were violently kicked off their land by Israeli soldiers. Now, this doesn't mean, therefore, everything Israel does is bad. But you have to understand that, uh, you know, the, what we get through the media oftentimes is, is hopelessly one-sided or incomplete, maybe another way to put it. And when Elias Shakur weighs in on this, he's not trying to do it in the sense that he's, you know, we're playing the victim and we're going to try to get everybody angry and let's get vengeance. In fact, he has devoted his life to trying to de-escalate the conflict that came about because of the violence that took place in dispossessing people who had been on these lands for many generations by Israeli soldiers and settlers. And, and it, it was some pretty ugly stuff. I mean, we are talking machine gunning innocent people, grenading innocent people, just to get them off of this land. And of course, there were many on the side of of, uh, the Palestinians. There were many of the Palestinians themselves who took that as, all right, this is it. This is jihad. We are going to fight back, you know, an eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth kind of stuff. The point here is there are a lot of people fighting in this conflict that were they weren't even around when the conflict started. It's been going on for a long time. I'm here to tell you there is blood, and I mean innocent blood, on the hands of both sides, as well as a bloodlust 
which uh, does not help the situation. And Elias Shakur has, has worked his entire life trying to, to bring peace because he really is a Christian. He, he wants he wants to serve Christ, and he wants to, to be, you know, a servant of the Prince of Peace. He doesn't want to foment further conflict. But in order to understand that, you have to be willing to face some facts that are not convenient, that are somewhat unpleasant. And <clears throat> I guess I'll just put it this way. Before I read his book, I was much more Zionist in how I tended to view that Middle Eastern conflict. And this, after reading his book, I'm not rabidly anti-Israel, nor am I rabidly anti-Palestinian. I don't see how a person who has actually studied the history of the Palestinian people could not come away with the conclusion of, wow, those folks have, have suffered a lot. And, and if your knee-jerk reaction is, well, they deserve it, I'm telling you, you need a little more historical perspective. I don't think anybody deserves the kind of suffering that they have endured. But you can't really understand that conflict, you know, without delving into a little bit more of the history there. And I mean, you know, for some people, they'll take it all the way back, you know, to to the Bible, you know, to to Esau, <laughs> Jacob. It's 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 an ugly, convoluted mess, but it doesn't help when it becomes politicized. And that's where I want to dive in today. So this was a long buildup to uh, the 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 problems between Israel and Palestine. And what I particularly wanted to share with you is an essay from Jacob Hornberger from the Future of Freedom Foundation. And this is going to strike some people as very controversial, but I'm going to go ahead and share it anyway with the hopes that it doesn't offend you so bad that you know you just can't go on. His article is titled, Opposing Israel is Not Necessarily Anti-Semitic. Now, Jacob Hornberger says, Defenders of the Israeli government's policies in the Middle East, especially with respect to the Palestinians, are increasingly going on the attack by pointing out that some critics of the Israeli state are also anti-Semitic. Good example is the May 24th article in the New York Times by columnist Brett Stevens, Anti-Zionism isn't anti-Semitism, someone didn't get the memo. And then Stevens cites example after example of anti-Semitism and anti-Zionism. Now, Jacob Hornberger says, look, it's true that some people who criticize Israel for its mistreatment of Palestinians are anti-Semitic. There's no question about that. But he says what's important to keep in mind is that the critics of the Israeli state are not necessarily anti-Semitic simply because they disagree with the policies of the Israeli state. Some people have nothing against Jews, but at the same time vehemently disagree with the Israeli government's policies toward the Palestinians. The mere fact that such people criticize the Israeli state does not convert them into anti-Semites. Now, he says the problem, which Stevens might or might not be aware of, is that for longtime defenders of the Israeli state, they have, for a long time rather, as defenders of the Israeli state have employed the anti-Semite card as a way to suppress criticism of the Israeli state. As soon as such criticism materializes, the Zionists go on attack by accusing the person of being anti-Semitic. And the strategy is very effective because some people, fearful of being smeared as anti-Semitic, refrain from openly criticizing the Israeli state. Now suppose some people criticize the Vatican for some of its policies. Some of the critics might well be anti-Catholic, but not necessarily. It's entirely possible that some of them have nothing against Catholics, but simply disagree with the Vatican's policies. To suppress such criticism, 
Some Vatican supporters might devise a strategy to condemn any person who criticizes the Vatican as being anti-Catholic. And that would be wrong. So here's his point. No regime should be above criticism, just as no religious prejudice rather, should be above criticism. To attempt to suppress criticism of a regime by resorting to an ugly smear is shameful and unconscionable. And again, I'm not asking you to take sides here. I'm hopefully offering something that will provide a little broader perspective than what you may already have. But that's in the interest of trying to, to bring some perspective to this conflict, not so much to tell you, therefore, now you can see that this side is right and that side is wrong. As I said before, there is enough innocent blood on the hands of all involved to go around. There are also some very good people, and I mean some truly wonderful people, who have been working and trying to to bring peace. And I hope that we would fall into that camp, as opposed to the, you know, let's turn the whole place into a parking lot and just kill them all. Because that mindset seems very prevalent. And I don't think it helps the situation much. By the way, I'm also including a link in the show notes which will lead you to a podcast in which uh, Jacob Hornberger talks about ending foreign aid, all foreign aid. Now, he's talking specifically about uh, ending Israel foreign aid, but, but he says we should be ending it for everybody. It's, it's crazy to, to see you know, how much money the U.S. Uh, I, I, want, I don't want to say the word donates because it's, it's, uh, you know, it's not like, oh, this is a charitable contribution, but how much money the U.S. shuttles towards the Israeli regime that uh, ends up being used to you know, keep the Palestinians in their place and to defend against anybody else. I don't think it makes the situation better. Now, that's just my opinion, and I think it entangles us in ways that actually uh, you know, may be harmful. So you can make up your own mind. Again, I'm not saying you have to agree with me on this, but I'm going to suggest that there's more to this than what you're likely to find in most mass media sources. So if you're a thinking person, or at least a person for whom some good context matters, then I would say, you know, take a look at Jacob Hornberger's article. Take a look, take a listen to his podcast. He's very principled. He's very nonpartisan. And I think he stands on the side of freedom, which is where I would want to stand in such matters. You'll find the link in the show notes at thebrianhideshow.com. We'll be back in just a moment. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show. A quick shout out to our sponsors, including HSLAmmo.com, Pure-Light.com, and MonticelloCollege.org. Wonderful sponsors. You'll find links to them in the show notes at thebrianhideshow.com. And I would encourage you, uh, send them a note. Tell them thank you. Tell them thanks for being a sponsor of the show. If you uh, think about it and you're so inclined, maybe consider becoming a monthly donor, a patron. And there's a link that uh, will help you do that as well at the end of each show notes. Well, we have a potentially landmark case involving the Second Amendment coming before the Supreme Court. And that means it's a good time to pose a timely question or two. Stephen Holbrook asks, does the Bill of Rights protect you outside of your home? That should seem like a no-brainer, right? 
I suspect this is one of the things that's going to be a focal point of this case. Let me share with you his story from the Washington Times. Stephen Holbrook says that uh, he says that this is one of the most important uh, decisions that will come before the Supreme Court in a very long time. In late April, the Supreme Court announced it would hear New York State Rifle and Pistol Association versus Corlett during its next term, which begins in October. Now, with a ruling due by June of next year, it will be the court's first major Second Amendment decision since 2010 and perhaps its most controversial. In 1791, the Bill of Rights was created for the people against the government. Did you catch that? The Bill of Rights, including the Second Amendment, has stood firm in the minds of the citizenry as a bulwark against I'm sorry, as a bulwark of American freedom by limiting government power. The central issue in this case, or at least in this latest case, is whether the Second Amendment right to bear arms extends outside of the home. Sure, you can take your gun from your bedroom to the kitchen, but can you take your gun outside? And if the answer is no, then we need to ask, do other constitutional freedoms, from the free exercise of religion to freedom of speech to rights against unreasonable search and seizure, to due process of law, do those rights also end as you exit your home? Now, opponents of the Second Amendment are lining up for a fight, and that's because they fear the court will rule that the right to bear arms includes the right to carry arms in public. By the way, Texas is adding to their fears because Texas, I believe, just yesterday or the day before, passed a constitutional carry law, meaning you don't have to have a permit to carry a firearm. Moreover, says Stephen Holbrook, the court might reject the seemingly rubber stamp approach that lower courts have applied in upholding most useless firearms restrictions that primarily impact law-abiding persons, since criminals, by definition, do not follow laws. Apparently, two relatively recent Supreme Court cases and the lack of lower court recognition of their precedents have set the stage for this case. In District of Columbia v. Heller, the Supreme Court held in 2008 that the district's handgun ban violated the individual right to keep and bear arms. Now, this opinion clarified that to bear arms means to carry arms and has no exclusive militia context. It also rejected the view that the right could be dismissed or diminished by judge-made interest balancing tests. Then the Supreme Court's McDonald v. Chicago decision in 2010 held that the right to arms is fundamental and protected from infringement by the states under the 14th Amendment. Now, that post-Civil War amendment had been proposed and ratified with the intent, in part, to protect the newly freed slaves' right to bear arms from state violation. Simply put, Heller confirmed the Second Amendment protects individual rights. MacDonald held that the Second Amendment applies to the states. Now, the case to be argued concerns the state of New York's general ban on carrying handguns in public and its issuance of permits to carry to just a select few persons who the authorities deem as having proper cause. That's in quotation marks. In, a, in practice, he says, that limits permits to a handful of wealthy or otherwise influential, well-connected persons. You don't qualify if you live in a high-crime neighborhood, as you're no different than anybody else there. Yet the Second Amendment refers to the people as having the right to bear arms. The overwhelming majority of states recognize a right to carry a handgun in public, either with or without a license. Only eight states are may issue. 
In other words, government officials have discretion in issuing a carry permit if they decide a person needs to carry. And it's in that handful of states where the question of whether the Second Amendment Amendment literally guarantees the right to bear arms is in litigation. See, Heller and McDonald changed nothing in such states. That is, some federal and state courts have resisted those decisions, reminding one of the defiance of the Supreme Court's 1954 decision in Brown v. the Board of Education. But whether the right to bear arms is good or bad policy is beyond the purview of the Supreme Court. Instead, its duty is to establish what the Constitution means and requires. As the Supreme Court stated in Heller, the enshrinement of constitutional rights necessarily takes certain policy choices off the table. And he says that principle would likely take off the table any policy which declares that Second Amendment rights can only be exercised inside of one's home. Now, Stephen Halbrook is a senior fellow with the Independent Institute in Oakland, California. He's written extensively on the right to keep and bear arms, as well as these various court cases. There is one place where I'm going to quibble with him just mildly, and that is when we talk about constitutional rights. I just want to make very clear. This is just purely for clarification, not to argue with him. Your rights don't come from the Constitution. The Constitution gives you absolutely no rights whatsoever. What it does is it calls into existence government for the purpose of protecting your pre-existing natural rights. Your right to free speech, that's yours. That is yours by virtue of the fact you are a human being. And the Constitution doesn't give you that right. Instead, it describes what government's form and function will be. It defines very clearly here are the upper limits of government power for the purpose of protecting those rights from infringement. Now, you may have known this, or at least you, know, you, you understood this at, at some level. But sometimes people get a little bit caught up in, well, you know, if they overturn the Second Amendment, they repeal the Second Amendment, or they interpret it as something else, why, it is gone. We no longer have a right to keep and bear arms. And I, I guess I'm going to sound like a radical for pointing this out, but that's a load of crap. You have the right to bear arms in defense of your person and property because you are a human being. It's a natural human right. Now, that doesn't mean that you can exercise that right to keep and bear arms in such a way that it infringes on other people or harms them or threatens them. But it's a right that pre-exists government. And government uh, is, you know, I mean, the, the wording in the Second Amendment. You know, the, I saw a quote yesterday. Someone was complaining. Well, you know, these problems, there's this, there's this idea that uh, people on the right have been selling about, you know, that uh, government should not be able to interfere in any way with your ability to keep and bear guns. And, you know, and, okay, well, here's, here's four little words for you. Shall not be infringed. What does that mean? I mean, you can, you can look for wiggle room in there, but... The right of the people to keep and bear arms, what was that again? Shall not be infringed. I think it was pretty clear. I mean, there's only 27 words in the whole Second Amendment, but it gives you no right because what it is expressing is a limit on government power, not an expansion of what you and I may or may not do. Now, as to the question, well, but hasn't government taken a lot of that power unto itself? I mean, come on, the NFA of 1934, the Gun Control Act of 1968. 
And the answer is yes, it has, uh, the government has overstepped its bounds and, in fact, infringed in ways big and small. And this is where I'm going to get really radical for just a moment. Uh, not, this is not a call to violence in any way, shape, or form. But it's just the observation that your rights are dependent on one thing and one thing only. That you recognize what they are, you claim them, use them, and defend them. Okay, so there's four things. Recognize, claim, use, defend. I hope this offers some clarity. Again, there will be a link in the show notes. You can check them out at thebrianheidshow.com. We'll be back in just a moment. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. All right, welcome back to the show. Somebody asked me yesterday, this was a, a, qu- a quiz on Facebook, or at least a question that was being posed, a little poll, and it said, describe what you do badly. And it was really funny. And unfortunately, my first answer I thought was, I wish I had just answered like this. What I do is I brainwash people into thinking for themselves. <laughs> so, yeah, that's, that's my goal. It's not to get you to agree with me. It's not to get you, you know, to march in lockstep with whatever I think is is right. My goal is to hopefully not to not just, you know, push you, but to inspire you to think clearly and independently, take ownership of your opinions, and above all, question. Question the narrative, question the prevailing conventional wisdom, question everything, question whatever I'm telling you. Because my goal isn't to build an army of followers. Yes, we're all followers of the Brian Hyde Show. No, my goal is to create uh, the kind of introspection and the kind of uh, listenership that outgrows me. I would actually take it as a great compliment the day that you say, you know, Brian, thanks. You've helped me on my journey, but I'll take it from here. And away you go. Because I believe that uh, that real leadership does not uh, consist of creating more followers. It uh, consists of building more leaders, helping people recognize the leadership within themselves and letting them set out on whatever their life's journey, whatever their path is, in such a way that they can go out there and do what they were born to do. I don't say that lightly. I, I think we all were born with something essential that needs to be done but can be done best by us. I'm going to add, just for the sake of those who are people of faith, done by us with God's help. Because for me, that's where it really seems to click into place. Once, once I recognized you know, that, that my creator actually has a pretty active hand in my life, to the degree that I'm willing to recognize and allow it to happen, everything changed. Everything took on more meaning. Everything took on more purpose. That's something I would encourage others to, to find out for themselves. Okay, back to the hard topics at hand. You know, one of the curious things about unleashing the dogs of war is that no one ever can quite accurately predict what the unintended consequences might bring. I think one of the best examples of this is World War I. You know, the Archduke Ferdinand and his wife murdered 
by by some radical well this means war and it's going to be over shortly we're going to just march in there and we're going to take care of business and instead it set off this conflagration that consumed millions upon millions of lives set the stage for another even bigger war just a few years down the road that's the kind of stuff i'm talking about but it doesn't have to be literal warfare Sometimes it can be things like uh, the war on drugs. Do you don't think there have been some unintended consequences there? Well, want to try an experiment? Drive around with uh, $60,000 in cash in your vehicle. Get stopped for failing to signal for two seconds when you changed lanes or some other pretext. Your license plate light is out. And in many jurisdictions, if a police officer sees $60,000 or finds it incident to, you know, looking through your vehicle, do you mind if I take a look through your stuff here? They find that amount of cash. More often than not, you're going to find that there is some kind of justification will be offered for, well, we think that's suspicious, and they'll seize it. Now, you could be as honest as the day is long, and it doesn't matter. That's part of the kind of collateral damage I'm talking about. How about the war on poverty? I mean, it started under Lyndon Baines Johnson. Have we wiped it out? Or have we just created generations of dependents? Here's the, here's the key. James R. Harrigan and Anthony Davies, hosts of the Words and Numbers podcast, have a fascinating article on another war. This is one I hadn't even heard of before their article, and that is the War on Retirement. This one landed in my email inbox yesterday, courtesy of the American Institute for Economic Research. If you haven't subscribed to their daily emails, You're missing out on some phenomenal information. So Harrigan and Davies start by by listing out of the five most expensive wars the United States has waged, only one, World War II, involved an armed enemy. The other five, poverty, drugs, terror, and COVID, were all wars on nouns. Now the federal government appears to have inadvertently stumbled into another war, the War on Retirement. Unlike the other wars on nouns, this one isn't only undeclared, it wasn't even intended. But the federal government has taken a series of steps that, regardless of intent, have yielded a situation in which retirement may end up a pipe dream for many. Now, they say, ironically, this war on retirement began with Social Security in 1935. Rather than establishing a forced savings program where people would save their money during their working years and have that money returned to them during retirement, the government established a Ponzi scheme wherein later participants paid off earlier participants. As with all Ponzi schemes, the program was was sustainable only if there were more people paying into the system than there were receiving benefits from it. By the early 1980s, too few people were paying in, and Congress fired its first salvo at retirees by making previously tax-free retirement benefits taxable. And this tweak in the rules breathed new life into the Ponzi scheme and Social Security reserves once again grew. But the scheme failed again in 2010, and since then, Social Security has been paying out more than it brings in. Current estimates have the trust fund becoming insolvent by 2035. So to keep this bloated program afloat, Congress will eventually be forced to fire yet another salvo when it either raises workers' taxes or reduces retirees' benefits. And with each passing year, this albatross around workers' necks will become heavier. Harrigan and Davies write, The Federal Reserve, predictably, has been an invaluable ally in the government's unwitting war on retirement. Since the late 1980s, the Federal Reserve has been relentless in driving interest rates down. 
Interest rates on saving accounts, savings accounts rather, uh, certificates of deposit, even treasury bills are now functionally zero. Even the return on corporate bonds is so low as to barely keep pace with inflation. Fed policy has put such a squeeze on savers that the only way to save for retirement is to invest in stocks. And while younger workers have plenty of time to weather the risks of waxing and waning stock markets, forcing retirees and near-retirees into stocks exposes them to risks they can't weather nearly as well. And now the Biden administration presents the coup de grace. President Biden has proposed doubling capital gains tax rates. You know, the taxes you pay when you make a profit in the stock market. Now, the White House says that that elevated tax will only apply to those earning over a million dollars. But these taxes on the rich have a solid history of eventually being applied to everyone else. For reference, look at the birth of the federal income tax. Politicians promised the new income tax would only be 1% and would only apply to the rich. Once instituted, though, it took Congress just five years to raise the income tax rate sixfold and to apply it to everyone, even the poor. Now, in a real war, there are rules that require humane treatment for vanquished enemies, but retirees can expect no such treatment in the war on retirement. Those who manage to save enough for retirement despite Social Security's problems and despite near-zero interest rates will be punished in death because the Biden administration intends to raise the tax on dying by slashing the estate tax exemption in half. Retirees' heirs would have to hand over to the federal government 40% of whatever savings the retirees had left over above the exemption. By the way, that proposed exemption, around $5 million, is high enough that it will apply to mostly rich and small business owners. But like the federal income tax, the estate tax will soon come for the rest of us. And as Biden is trying to push the estate tax exemption down to reach more estates, simultaneously he's trying to push the values of those estates up to cross the exemption threshold by eliminating step-up in basis rules, the effect of which will be to increase capital gains taxes on inherited stock. Death and taxes indeed. Harrigan and Davies say the war on retirement shares much in common with an actual war, World War I. A Serbian killed the nephew of the Austrian-Hungarian emperor, causing the empire to declare war on Serbia. But Russia was allied with Serbia, was allied with Serbia, rather, and the declaration forced Russia to mobilize. That caused Germany to declare war on Russia, which in turn caused France to declare war on Germany. Bottom line is World War I shouldn't have happened. It was an unintended consequence, an unintended cascade of what should have been isolated events. So, too, the war on retirement. The government never intended to wage war on retirees, but it has set in motion policies that collectively do just that. The American version of the assassination of Archduke Ferdinand, the event that began the steady march toward oblivion, was the passage of the Social Security Act back in 1935. James R. Harrigan and Anthony Davies say the dominoes have been falling ever since, and the last ones are about to tip over. Intentions be damned. If you haven't subscribed to their podcast, by the way, Words and Numbers is marvelous. They are, uh, they are not only very well-informed, but also uh, pretty witty, fun to listen to, and you will definitely come away a smarter person at the end of each episode. You can also check out their writings on uh, fee.com and the American Institute for Economic Research, as well as another, a number of other publications. And yes, I will have a link in the show notes at thebrianhydeshow.com. Stay with us. We'll be back. One more segment coming up.
This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. And just like that, we are back. Welcome back to the show. Again, if you're if you're kind of uh, wrong, think curious, a new listener to the show, you know, I mean, I started right out with the whole, uh, hey, criticizing Israel isn't necessarily anti-Semitism. If I haven't scared you off yet, well, hopefully you'll be along for the ride because we have a lot of other great stuff to cover, not just today, but every day on this program. I want to share with you next uh, the, the next great scandal. As if we don't have enough scandals all around us, right? Uh, well... There's no shortage of them, but Annie Holmquist from intellectualtakeout.org has a great piece on the the latest scandal. I've seen this popping up on social media here the last few days, and it has been uh, it's been fascinating to watch. Photoshopped modesty. This is what's setting people a Twitter pun intended. She says there's a new censorship scandal afoot. It involves school yearbook pictures, a little too much skin, and some lousy Photoshop skills. Blonde, smiling ninth grader Riley O'Keefe was one of the victims of some aggressive photoshopping of her yearbook pictures by high school administrators. O'Keefe's original school picture featured a gray sweater over a low-cut black tank top that exposed her cleavage. Now, the scoop neckline became straight, covering O'Keefe's chest. And she was incensed as she found out that dozens of other girls also had their chests photoshopped out. Some of the girls say they felt sexualized and exposed by the digital alterations. The New York Times reported O'Keefe said the school should recognize it's making girls feel ashamed of their bodies. Now, Annie Holmquist says O'Keefe's response may seem natural in the modern world of liberated sexual self-expression, but it also shows how upside down and confused that same sexualized self-expression is. Modesty standards are now considered a form of sexual exploitation. And these young girls seem rather confused, she writes, not realizing they're simply parroting society's textbook answers, which don't really fit their situation. The opposite of their claims is true. For how can girls feel sexualized and exposed when those photo alterations were performed in order to eliminate the very exposure that could sexualize them? She says the confused indignation of these girls would likely come as no surprise to family physician, psychologist, and author Dr. Leonard Sachs. In his book, Girls on the Edge, Sachs explored some of the challenges, fears, and concerns young women are dealing with today, and one of those issues is modesty. Sachs credited feminist author Germaine Greer's 1970 book, The Female Eunuch, for creating this problem, saying that Greer's main assertion that female modesty is a consequence and manifestation of the patriarchy has achieved the status of established fact in contemporary gender studies. He continues, quote, The corollary... That female immodesty is a sign of liberation is now widely accepted. Girls today are coming of age in a culture in which teenage girls strip off their clothes at the beach or compete in wet t-shirt contests for the amusement of teenage boys. What's especially weird about those competitions is that both the girls and the boys seem to believe that the girls parading their unveiled bodies is somehow modern, hip, and contemporary. End quote. Now, Annie Holmquist says, this comes, thus it comes as no surprise that the girls with the doctored yearbook photos would view themselves as sexualized and exposed. For the ideas advanced by Greer's feminism have infiltrated society and turned the concept of modesty on its head. Labeling true sexualization of women as a good thing, while labeling modest standards of dressing as oppressive. 
Again, here's Dr. Sachs explaining, quote, By chastising feminine modesty as a symptom of patriarchal oppression, Greer provided support to the idea that pole dancers are liberated women. Her argument became so intrinsic to contemporary feminism that many people today don't even know where it came from. If you even hint at an objection to Girls Gone Wild, you may find yourself labeled as a reactionary who favors a 1950s-style patriarchy. End quote. So uh, here's what Annie Holmquist sums it up with. She says, look, from what I've seen from headlines, pretty much everyone is up in arms against the school that doctored the yearbooks to remove cleavage. But she says, I just wonder if we're barking up the wrong tree. For as Sachs implies, the more we preach liberation through minimal clothing, the more damage we will be doing to our daughters' minds and bodies. I'll have a link to this in the show notes. I would encourage you to check it out. I don't know, I don't know where you fall on this, but... Um, Definitely, you know, another scandal worth considering. But I think she has a point. We're actually outraged that someone was working to protect the modesty of these girls as opposed to, you know, letting them show their their cleavage. You know, as a father of three daughters, I know what side I come down on, and it's, it's the modesty side, but hey, that may just be my white male privilege talking. So one of the goals of this program is uh, I always want you to be more sure of what I stand for rather than uh, who or what I'm against. And I, I love that there are people who can, can summarize essential principles in easy-to-understand ways. I strive to be one of those people, but I'm not there yet. It's a lifelong pursuit, and I'm going to probably take the rest of my life to get there. Now, if you've never heard the name Carl Hess, you've still likely heard some of his observations and I want to share with you an article from Gary Gallas. This is, uh, this is such a great uh, article from the Foundation for Economic Education. Liberty is simply being human to the hilt. It's, it's and 21 other choice quotes by Carl Hess. For a little bit of background, though, about who Carl Hess was, Gary Gallas asks, Do you remember Barry Goldwater's most famous quote? Extremism in the defense of liberty is no vice. Moderation in the defense of justice is no virtue. Now, that statement enabled opponents to demean him as an extremist, explaining why the left still tries to pin that scarlet letter E on opponents. But as Stephen Hayward noted, such extremism only means that Americans grow a spine and say stop to the endless expansion of the state. Further, rather than focusing attention on Goldwater, it makes more sense to focus on the writer of those words, Carl Hess, whose birthday was yesterday. Hess was a central influence in reviving a commitment to liberty in America. And given the guttering flame of freedom today, his extremist words merit reconsideration. So I'm going to just share a few of his quotes with you. The first one we alluded to, liberty is simply being human to the hilt, being absolutely responsible for your own choices in life, never initiating force to get your way or condoning it for someone else to get their way. He also wrote, politics has always been the institutionalized and established way in which some men have exercised the power to live off the output of other men. How about this one? Politics uh, throughout time has been the institutionalized denial of man's employment of all his powers for his own welfare through the resources that it has been able to plunder from the creative and productive people. Oh my word, this is just ringing so true. Both liberals and conservatives today see the state as an instrument not protecting man's freedom, but either instructing or restricting how that freedom is to be used. 
This one sounds like it could have been from H.L. Mencken. The state has not given me anything that it did not first extort from me. No person is so grand, wise, or perfect as to be the master of another person. How about this one? Will men continue to submit to rule by politics, which has also meant the power of some men over other men? This is one of the reasons why, personally, I I steer clear of politics as much as possible. If you want to build community, you want to build relationships, that's one of the things you're going to have to be willing to set aside and just put the politics aside, and then you can start working on productive stuff. Because at its heart, politics is always going to be about power. It will always turn things into a power struggle. Again, uh, Mr. Hess said this so much better than I did, but uh, I think it's, it's worth uh, consideration. How about this? Many people are so unsure of freedom that they see its preservation only in its abandonment. He also wrote the Declaration of Independence scares the hell out of every modern bureaucrat because it tells them there comes a time when we must stop taking orders. Kind of get the sense that maybe that time is, is approaching once again. Carl Hess also wrote, I want the freedom to be responsible for my own actions. He said, each man is a sovereign land of liberty. And he and I would agree on this one here. Politics devour men. A laissez-faire or hands-off would, will liberate them. He also wrote, I yearn for a state that cannot compel anything but simply prevents the use of violence in place of other exchanges in relations between individuals or groups. This one will uh, definitely hit the Karens where it hurts. Each man is the absolute owner of his life to use and dispose of as he sees fit. Or all man's social action should be voluntary. The only, repeat, only function of law or government is to provide the self-defense against violence that an individual, if he were powerful enough, would provide for himself. And I'll leave you with this one here. We have the illusion of freedom only because so few ever try to exercise it. He says, try it sometime. The rest of the quotes are in the link, which you will find at the show notes at thebrianhideshow.com. I'm sad to admit I had really never heard of Carl Hess before reading this article. Now that I've read it, well, I'm off to find some more of his writings. The man had something to say. This is The Brian Hyde Show.